0: I cover crime for the Miami Herald, and uh, some of you, I presume, will be journalism superstars of tomorrow. And uh, we're all very fortunate. Uh, our work is exciting, and anything is possible. Uh, the year that I won the Pulitzer, one of the other winners was 23 years old, an investigative reporter from Lexington, Kentucky. And it's also exciting because we are among the few people in the world today who can cut through all the system's bureaucratic baloney and really get something done. I think some young reporters in the past have considered covering the cops an entry-level beat uh, in a newspaper's least desirable job, and uh, I've never understood that because the police beat is all about people, what makes them tick, what makes them become heroes or homicidal maniacs, what brings out the best in them or drives them berserk. It has everything, greed, sex, violence, comedy, and tragedy, and you learn more about people than on any other newspaper beat. And I think that the crime beat has become a little bit more respectable, uh, made so in recent years by Watergate, which grew out of a police blotter burglary, and to a lesser degree by the 1986 Pulitzer. I was the first woman journalist in Florida to cover crime full-time, and when I joined the Herald almost 18 years ago, few women were assigned to major crime stories, But I think now editors have realized that a woman can cover crime in the streets as well, if not better than a man. And I would like to say that I have never used my sex to beat out the competition or to get a story, but that's not quite true. Uh, I was the first reporter and the first woman to step into sex killer Albert Bruss' torture chamber uh, willingly. He was a mild-mannered housing inspector who lived quietly in the suburbs until the day the young housewife next door ran out to snatch her wash off the clothesline during a storm. And Albert Brust was reclining on a lawn chair in his backyard, and there was thunder and lightning, it was starting to rain, and Brust did not move. And then it occurred to this busy young mother that her neighbor had not moved in two days, so she called the police. And Brust had swallowed a cyanide-laced milkshake. He had committed suicide because of a housekeeping problem. You see, he had kidnapped two teenage runaways in Fort Lauderdale, He had killed the boy and cemented his body into the bathtub, covering it up. And after a few days, he drove the girl to Fort Lauderdale and let her go. And she, of course, went directly to the police, who, of course, did not believe a word she said, and sent her back home to Kentucky. But Brust, who was an immaculate housekeeper, had somehow miscalculated. The cement in the bathtub didn't seal. The body began to decompose, and the terrible odor permeated the entire house. So the only answer would be to use a jackhammer to excavate the body, which would then have to be disposed of some other way. So Brust took the easy way out and left the the dirty work for the police, and they found what appeared to be a routine suicide case, and uh, it was bizarre when they discovered that the walls of the house were soundproofed and padded, and of course there was a specially outfitted torture chamber with psychedelic lighting, and of course something awful under the cement in the bathtub. So the press and a crowd gathered outside as the poor homicide detectives worked in the bathroom with the jackhammer and there were newspaper wire service radio and tv reporters dozens of them all of the men except me and it took hours for the police to recover the body and find out exactly what they had meanwhile we were waiting in the hot sun outside and my deadline was approaching fast finally the police said they would take the press into the house uh, for a tour of the premises and the torture chamber for our stories one at a time which could take hours and I still had to drive all the way back downtown to write my story, and I was pushing deadline. So without even thinking, instinctively, in desperation, I yelled, ladies first. (laughs) So being the only woman in the mob, I got to go first, made my deadline, and filed the nation's... (laughs) uh, And and filed the nation's first story on this classic case of murder and, and madness. And I did not feel guilty, although I did ask myself later, was that being aggressive, which is considered good in this business, or sexist, which is bad? There is a fine line, and I think that's as close as I've come to it. I don't think it was unethical or unprofessional under the circumstances. It's not easy. You know, nobody loves a police reporter. I've been threatened with arrest, uh, had rocks thrown at me, get threatening letters, subpoenas, and obscene phone calls, some of them from my editors, We are often unwelcome intruders. People blame us for the bad news. It's human nature. We're just the bad news messengers, but the Greeks used to kill the messengers, and some people would be delighted to revive the custom. But a big satisfaction is that our stories often produce results. They do make a difference. And one of the joys of this job is that we can be catalysts for change and even bring about justice in cases where it would never triumph otherwise. Often the cops' hands are tied. Often judges are inept, corrupt, or incompetent. Sometimes we are all the victim has got. Half a million informed readers can often be far more effective forces for good than a couple of indifferent or preoccupied cops on the case. And it's great, because sometimes it can make you feel like Wonder Woman or Superman to the rescue. You know, we can and do find missing kids, lost grandmothers, and misplaced corpses. People who fall through the cracks can be fished out by a reporter— a story can rescue people caught in the hopeless maze of government and bureaucracy. A story can bring victims donations of blood, vital organs, money, wheelchairs. It can win them public support and sometimes justice because it is a brutal fact of life that a case with major media attention is better best investigated by the police thank you, and better prosecuted and it may make the difference in whether it is solved or not. Police stories do make a difference, and sometimes the law is even changed because of them. Public enlightenment is the forerunner of justice, and I believe that and feel privileged to work for a great newspaper like the Miami Herald. Literally millions of people read our stories, and of course, they have got to be right. You have to be accurate and fair and very, very careful, particularly in crime reporting. A news story mentioning somebody's name can ruin their life or come back to haunt them 20 years later. It's there in black and white on file, It's like a police record. You never outlive it. When it's in the newspaper, it's forever, and we're dealing with lives, (coughs) excuse me, reputations and careers. It's a very heavy responsibility. You could do terrible damage. In Fort Lauderdale, a reporter irresponsibly identified an elderly man as a suspect in a vicious murder of a young mother and her children. He didn't kill them, but he did kill himself. He committed suicide after the story was published. He could not live with the thought that he was even suspected of such a terrible thing and he wasn't it was a mistake he had been ruled out as a suspect long before the story ever appeared so you go the distance and a little bit further knock on one more door make one more phone call ask one more question because it could be the one that counts questions are the most valuable tools of our trade a simple question changed the course of my entire life if there ever was a lackluster scholar on my call of you you know it was me my mom was 17 when I was born. My father took off when I was seven. I was clumsy, nearsighted, terrible at athletics, and didn't get to mingle with kids my own age because I had to take care of my younger sister and everything else while my mother worked two jobs. I was always the youngest in my class at school, and I was unfortunately the tallest girl, self-conscious and, and gawky, you know, a real mess, uh, wearing hand-me-downs that my her coworkers gave to my mother. And I felt like everybody laughed at me, and sometimes I'm sure that they did. I hated school, and a few unkind teachers added to the burden. An elementary math school teacher that I will never forget told me once in front of the entire class that I would never be anything, not even a good housewife, because I would be unable to count my change at the supermarket or figure out the measurements for a recipe. And everybody laughed, and I was so humiliated that I never forgot what she said. But of course, it has turned out all right, because recipes never have been my strong suit, And I don't count my change at the supermarket. I don't have to. I write checks. (laughs) But (laughs) when I was in the sixth and seventh grades, it was so bad that I dreaded Sunday nights because Monday morning meant school. And covering murder, mayhem, riots, and so on, it's been a breeze by comparison since then. And there were two bright spots. One was reading. I was hooked on newspapers by age six. And the other was my seventh grade English teacher, Edna May Tunis. She thought that I could write, and she sort of encouraged me. And uh, she is the one who asked the question that changed my life. She asked it in front of the entire class and again later in a little note. And the question was, will you promise to dedicate a book to me someday? And if that, of course, just blew my 11-year-old mind into all sorts of fantasies, and by the end of that term, I was trying to sell stories to the Saturday Evening Post. And uh, I showed Mrs. Tunis my first rejection slip, I was astonished. You know, she said I could write, so why didn't they buy my story? And she explained that it would be the first of many rejections, but that I should never, ever let them discourage me or give up because someday I would write and sell books. And she was right. My recent book, *The Corpse Had a Familiar Face*, is in its fifth printing. It will be published in uh, England and Japan later this year. And Disney has optioned the film rights. Uh, I was surprised, too, because I always thought of Disney as uh, Snow White and Bambi, but they do a lot of grown-up movies. Uh, Outrageous Fortune, Three Men and a Baby, Good Morning Vietnam, those are all Disney, Disney films. And the book, uh, if any of you have seen it, uh, may have noticed, is dedicated to Edna Mae Tunis. And she never got to know about that because she died when I was still in the 8th grade. She was only 48. Mrs. Tunis has been dead for more than 30 years, but she is very much alive to me. Uh, high school was a real disaster. My mother worked in a coat factory and nights in a candle factory, and she filled in on weekends as a waitress. Both of the, uh, the candle factory and the waitress job were both weekends, uh, both night shift, and I went in in her place when she was too tired to go. So school was not my top priority, and obviously going to college was about as feasible as going to the moon. It was never even discussed. So I didn't think of writing for a number of years, And it was because of Mrs. Tunis that later on I made a decision when I was about 20. Uh, I had a close horse friend who wanted to attend a night course in millinery at the local high school, and she didn't want to drive there alone at night and asked me to go with her. And I had no interest in hats, and I looked through the list of courses involved in creative writing, um, leaped off the page, and it was a large class. And that first night, the teacher asked how many had been published, and it seemed like Most of them raised their hands, and I was very intimidated. I thought I was in way over my head, and I almost dropped out, but I remembered what Mrs. Tunis had said to me, that I could do it. And the instructor was a struggling writer living in Greenwich Village, and he told us all to write something and mail it to him so he could critique it the following week. So I stayed up all night writing a short story and sent it off. And the following week, the teacher said something had happened to him that week, something that every teacher hopes for, and he went on to discuss a story that he had received in the mail. He talked for some time before I realized that he was talking about my story, and he compared it to early Tennessee Williams. And I sort of slid down in my chair embarrassed, but of course very pleased by the attention, and he kept me after class and gave me a list of writers that I should read and books that I should buy, and that course was so stimulating that I couldn't even sleep at night, and the next year I moved to Florida, the first thing I did before even finding a job was to join a creative writing class. I was hooked on the stimulation. Another student was uh, an editor at a small beach paper, and he heard that I needed a job and suggested that I come in and apply. I had never considered journalism, but I thought it might be a swell way to earn a living while I was writing the great American novel. I didn't realize, of course, that journalism will swallow up your entire life, leaving you no time to write a novel, a great American or otherwise. But uh, at the newspaper, another editor took my application... And he asked if I'd studied journalism in high school, and I said no, and he, my heart sank. I thought I'd lost the job, and he said good. And that was how I got into journalism. You couldn't do it that way again today. You've got to really pay your dues. But over the, the years, I've covered more than 5,000 deaths and covered kidnappings, mass murders, plane crashes, and other terrible catastrophes. And sometimes you only get the chance to ask one question, and if you're lucky, it's the right one. And sometimes the reporter is drawn personally into a case. There was a girl on a bicycle killed by a hit-and-run driver who backed up, pulled her and her bike out from under the car and threw them into a ditch where she died. She was 12 years old. And the police solved the case two days before the statute of limitations would have let him go free forever. And they brought him into headquarters in handcuffs. The TV cameras were waiting outside and I was waiting in the lobby. And I jumped onto the elevator with him and the two detectives who were not crazy about me joining them, but they were gentlemen, and they didn't want to be seen scuffling with me in front of the TV cameras. So uh, it was just a short ride to the second-floor homicide office, and I only had the time for one question, and I said, do you remember the accident? And he said, yes, I do. Very well. I put that into my story. He confessed to the police that day, but later he got a sharp defense attorney, repudiated his confession, and it was ruled inadmissible by the court. He pleaded not guilty. And I got subpoenaed to a pre-trial hearing. And of course, newspaper policy is thumbs down on testifying for obvious reasons, but this time was different. This guy might actually go free, and I would not be testifying to anything that was not in my story. So all I would do was swear to the accuracy of what I wrote. So I did testify that I was wearing press identification, carrying a reporter's notebook, and had identified myself to him as a Miami Herald reporter. So he did not think I was a police officer. So though what he said to the police that day was ruled out, what he said to me was not. And based on that, the defendant and his lawyer decided to change his plea to guilty rather than have a jury hear that testimony. It saved the taxpayers from the expense of a trial and from the possibility that some jury might have let him off. Sometimes you forget to ask the most obvious question. We had a police radio in the office of the small paper where I worked before joining the Herald and one afternoon it said there was a robbery in progress at a South Beach liquor store. So I jumped in my car and raced over there, and as I got out of the car, the owner of the store, a feisty old guy who'd been robbed five or six times and was fed up uh, and mad as hell, came running out the front door, and he ran past me down the street toward the first approaching police cars. I ran into the store to see what had happened. There was an entire rack of broken whiskey bottles in the middle of the floor, and a man was crouched in the far corner, trembling and panicky, and I rushed over, asked him if he was all right, got out my notebook and started to ask questions. He was a terrible interview. He kept rolling his eyes and saying, I don't know, man, I don't know nothing. And I thought the poor guy was in shock and I kept asking questions and which way did they go? What did they look like? And uh, I looked up at that point and saw the owner and three police officers with their noses pressed up against the plate glass window and they were sort of beckoning me to come out and um, I tried to ignore them because they have the habit of whisking away the witnesses before I have a chance to interview them and I still hadn't had gotten anything worth printing from this man so I kept asking questions but he was a lousy interview and finally I looked up again and this time the police looked angry and they were waving their arms and demanding that I come out so I gave up trying to get any quotes walked out onto the sidewalk the police ran past, rushed inside tackled the guy and handcuffed him he was the robber So I got subpoenaed to his trial by the defense. They wanted me to testify in his behalf that he was a perfect gentleman while I was there. (laughs) So I did testify, but it it didn't do him much good because the the judge was a woman named Ellen Morphonius who's known to the prisoners in our jail as the time machine because she gives them so much time behind bars. So I testified that he was a perfect gentleman but allows the interview and she gave him 20 years. Uh, Is that a signal? Okay, I have to wrap this up. I was going to tell you another story here, but I think we better, uh, maybe if you read the book, you can find it there. One thing I do want to tell you about, the most important question, of course, is the one that you forget to ask, because when covering a question, a story, I always ask what everybody involved was wearing, and it has little to do with style and everything to do with the time I failed to ask. A man was shot and dumped into the street by a killer in a pickup truck And the case seemed routine, if one could ever call homicide routine. But later, I learned that the time the victim was shot, he was wearing red high heels and a black taffeta cocktail dress. So I tracked down the detectives and asked, why didn't you tell me? And they chorused, you didn't ask, so now I always ask. And uh, one last thing that I wanted to tell you, uh, it is good news. Um, I told my story about Mrs. Tunis to a reporter who interviewed me for a New Jersey newspaper, and I told him that I knew she had a daughter who was a year or so younger than me and that I wished I could find her to let her know that the book is dedicated to her mother. I'd already checked and there were no listings with that last name in the phone book. Well, the power of the press did work again and uh, Mrs. Tunis, he put it in his story, Mrs. Tunis's daughter called the newspaper reporter the next day and she was crying and we have talked together uh, twice since. She's married and it's just as I thought. She's a teacher too, an English teacher like her mother. Now she's the chief guidance counselor for the Fairlawn, New Jersey school system. And I'm so glad that we did find each other. Putting it in the newspaper does work. Thank you.